Good morning. Uh, we have come to the end of the sermon series, uh, uh, summer series of sermons, and uh, I have been thoroughly uh, edified through the preaching of God's word through our brothers. And uh, I'm privileged to take partake in this endeavor um, and to bring um, today's word to us today. Uh, we're going to be covering the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew in a flyover fashion. And uh, I want everyone to open their Bible and turn to the beginning at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. My goal is to help you understand the authorial intent, what Matthew, the tax collector, and ultimately God, wanted to communicate. We will cover the context, the deliberate organizational structure, the themes, uh, selected exegesis, and some applications. Uh, I hope at the end of it all, you will better understand why at the end of Jesus' sermon, Matthew wrote, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. So let's dive in. The gospel according to Matthew is a highly organized and structured piece of writing with five pairs of narrative and discourse. Each uh, discourse narrative pair, uh, Matthew covers the content of Jesus' words and then follows up with a narrative of Jesus' ministry. And so the first literary pair begins in 423. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness among the people. How does Matthew describe Jesus' ministry? It was twofold, teaching and healing. He taught the gospel of the kingdom, and went throughout Galilee, healing every disease and sickness. The Sermon on the Mount is going to be Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. So what is this kingdom of God? It is an idea, a concept that was defined more clearly in Isaiah. The gospel, the good news that Isaiah delivered, was a message regarding the return of God's reign on earth. It included the coming of his presence, uh, coming of his presence, rule, and power, and this return of God's kingdom comes through the anointed Messiah, the suffering servant. It includes the coming of God's spirit, inaugurating a new age, a new Genesis, and Exodus, where all the nations are invited and gathered. Jesus had announced that the kingdom is at hand, therefore the most important concern in life is to find the kingdom, to enter the kingdom, and be great in the kingdom. So Jesus begins his teaching about life in the kingdom. Um, he says that, Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now we find the words blessed, or happy are those, or flourishing are those. It is a term that is translated from the word, Greek word makarios. It is the pronouncement of a human condition of being approved by God and living fully as God as God uh, designed us to live. Thus, Jesus began, begins his sermons with the set of invitations to a life of human flourishing. The secular world and our natural hearts point us to believe that human flourishing happens when we achieve professional success, a happy family, a security of wealth. But Jesus provides a countercultural definition of human flourishing, that is, a virtuous life defined by Christ. He presents us with the vision of man as we were intended to be. It is characterized by spiritual hunger, 
meekness, mercy, and peacemaking. So each makarios has two parts, a condition clause and a consequent clause. Each beatitude is good because of the consequent clause connected to the kingdom of heaven. So the poor in spirit are flourishing or blessed, not because being poor in spirit is good, but because the kingdom of heaven will be theirs. So the first four beatitudes are beatitudes of emptiness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So Jesus says that those who know they lack in spirit are blessed people. Because God is going to send the Holy Spirit to bring life to the poor and turn their hearts into hearts of flesh. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who mourn over sin are people um, who are living according to God's intent. Uh, we have an example in Lamentations where the prophet Jeremiah mourned over the calamity that befell Jerusalem due to their love of sin, their refusal to obey God, and their uh, continuation to trust in idols and kings. As in Isaiah 40, God is going to bring comfort by bringing uh, about a new creation order where sin and death is no more. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Those who are humble are flourishing because uh, they are uh, the characteristics of the sons and daughters of the Father who um, will inherit the new heaven and the new earth in the eschaton. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness have the correct perspective on life, and the Father will clothe them with an alien righteousness in the kingdom. In contrast to the first four Beatitudes, the next four Beatitudes define the virtues of possession. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The Father gives hearty approval to those who show mercy to others. They are imitating the character of the Father who will show them mercy at the end of days. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus says that those who are pure in heart are blessed. Uh, and uh, the pure, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Um, they are those um, uh, with hearts that have undivided uh, devotion to the Lord. They don't have contaminated hearts with a mixture of allegiances to both idols and, and the Father. Um, and they will behold the presence of the Lord in the new Eden. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are peacemakers are people who are living according to God's will. Those who seek to restore peace between God and man through the gospel will be called sons and daughters by the Father. So let me take this moment uh, to speak directly to those who don't know Christ or have not put their faith in Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is not about, not about how you entered the kingdom of God. It is about what life is like within the kingdom of God once Jesus has redeemed you from a life of sin, and have given you a new heart that loves God and loves people. The Beatitudes, then, are a window to another world, a better world prepared by God. And Jesus invites you into his kingdom with the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, this kingdom, the, this better kingdom, is coming, and the first step to take is the step of repentance. The Beatitudes close with the final summary blessing. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Uh, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Following Christ, living according to his definition of human flourishing, will result in persecution. The world will malign disciples, make wrong assumptions of motives, and seek to destroy their standing and reputation. But they have a great reason to rejoice, because what matters is their reward in heaven. And uh, with the expectation of suffering and persecution, it would be natural to want to hide your identity as Christians in the community. But Jesus defines our identity for us. We are the salt and light of the world. Our purpose, then, is not to live peaceful and hidden lives, but to live radically holy lives in bright contrast to the pattern of the world. We were redeemed to be a different people, a people who live kingdom lives in this earthly realm. So how do we live life as salt and light? And much ink has been spilled trying to describe salt as a preserving or disinfecting agent. And many sermons have been preached explaining the functions of baskets and lampstands. But this isn't supposed to be understood in the narrow context of four verses. Rather, we should understand the larger context and recognize that this is the introduction to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And Jesus is going to cover um, the commandments of the kingdom, uh, religious piety, and wise living. And so when read in this context, uh, following and obeying his instructions in the Sermon on the Mount is the definition of being salt and light in the world. Uh, In doing so, the world will see our good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. Jesus moves forward, offering a detailed description of the character and conduct of one who lives as salt and light in the world. Uh, In the next section, he's going to call us to a greater righteousness. Jesus begins by saying, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill. What does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets? Some say it means that Jesus lived a perfect life in obedience to the law and fulfilled it on our behalf. While this may be theologically correct, it is not the way that Matthew uses the word fulfill in the rest of the book. Instead, Matthew uses the term fulfill 19 times in the book to explain that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. And so Jesus fulfills the law by being the promised Messiah. Yet, there's another sense of the use of the word fulfill. In Romans 8, 3 through 4, Apostle Paul uses the same word fulfill to to describe how Jesus set us free from our bondage to sin so that we can live uh, according to the Spirit and fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. It says, For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so Jesus came as a sin offering to break the power of sin over our lives and to empower us with his Spirit so that we can live in obedience to his commands. Let me say this another way. Jesus provides us with the complete salvation, not only forgiving sin and giving us his righteousness, but also setting us free from our bondage to sin so that we can walk in obedience through the empowerment of his spirit. Therefore, as freed people, we have strict responsibility to teach and disciple believers in the commandments of the kingdom. So it says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
So let's be very clear. Life in the kingdom comes with the responsibility to learn, practice, and teach Christ's commandments. And Jesus is not speaking only in the first use of the law. This is not only about presenting the perfect righteousness of God so that we can recognize our sinfulness. At the end of Matthew, in the Great Commission, we are commanded to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. So this call to obedience is not, uh, and this call to obedience is not a yoke. It is not too difficult, for the Lord is with us and has provided a helper so that we can become more like Christ. So let's press into the kingdom people that Jesus intends us to be. With teaching being so critical, the disciples may have been thinking, those scribes and Pharisees are aces when it comes to teaching us the commandments. So it must have been to their surprise that Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and Pharisees were not wicked lawbreakers who flaunted their life of sin as an expression of their identity. Rather, they were experts when it came to the understanding and practice of the law. They were role models to learn from and copy. They fasted twice per week. They were disciplined in their daily prayers. They tithed everything and observed all the holy days. So how could Jesus expect a greater righteousness than these experts? Jesus, pro Jesus provides an important corrective for our understanding of the law and righteousness. Jesus was referring to a cardiographic understanding of righteousness. He placed an emphasis on the intentions of the heart. The Pharisees had an external righteousness that did not match the in internal desires of their hearts. For this reason, Jesus was speaking of a greater righteousness, a righteousness where the internal heart and external acts are in alignment. And this, and this synchronization of the internal and the external is communicated in uh, 548. It says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It is an allusion to the command to be holy in Leviticus. This term perfect, or teleos, has been interpreted um, as perfect, but it conveys the idea of wholeness and completeness rather than moral perfection. So being teleos uh, is being people in our final form, uh, who, we are, who we are going to become. At glorification, we will be whole people. Thus, righteousness is not, doing about, uh, is not about doing more righteous things, but be, being whole people. A whole person does not, own, does not murder, but also does not have hatred in his heart. A whole person is not a hypocrite who prays in public, but while their heart is far from God. A whole person does not have divided allegiance to God and money. Jesus would later use this term to speak to the rich young ruler, saying, If you would be teleos, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus begins with a few examples of what it means to be teleos, focusing on the heart condition that defines, uh, uh, that drives one's actions. So he says, uh, you have heard it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Um, so greater righteousness is concerned with the heart condition that drives the impulse to murder. The words reveal the content of the heart. Jesus makes an allusion to the Cain and Abel narrative. Um, 
that Cain should have resolved his hatred against his brother before, before offering his sacrifice and before he murdered his brother. In contrast, the disciples are to be proactive in pursuing reconciliation with the brother before presenting an offering in the temple because unresolved conflict will have eschatological consequences. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, adultery is not a matter of external action, but the desire of the heart. In reference to gouging of the eyes or amputation, signaled the severity of sin. Uh, it was not a solution to sin, as the source of the sinful desire is in the heart. Uh, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And Jesus brought back the permanence of the marriage covenant back to its original intent. The school of Hillel had interpreted the divorce clause in Deuteronomy to exclude virtually anything that uh, displeased the husband. It made the marriage covenant meaningless. In contrast, Jesus explained that marriage covenant remains because God does not accept a written notice of divorce. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Jesus emphasized the singularity of the heart that results in an agreement between speech and intention. The scribes and Pharisees had developed a system surrounding oaths that said oaths made invoking heaven, earth, or Jerusalem were non-binding. Jesus prohibited making such useless oaths. In contrast, he called his disciples to be characterized by such integrity that uh, their words can be trusted without an oath. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn and the other to him also. So the principle of lex talionis, or eye for an eye, is used in three places in the Old Testament to prevent the courts from being unjustly lenient or unduly in its sentences. It was never intended to be a basis for revenge. A person of greater righteousness endures various abuses without resorting to personal retaliation. It is driven by the faith that the father will carry out appropriate vengeance and bring justice on behalf of his children. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. And uh, contemporaries in Jesus' days used the inverse of the command to love one's neighbor in Leviticus to require hatred of one's enemies. But this is not a principle found in Old Testament law. Instead, Jesus instructed his disciples to imitate the Father and actively love and pray for their enemies. In the context of the early church, the enemies would have been those who persecuted the disciples. While the enemies scourged, slandered, and killed the disciples, Jesus instructed his disciples to respond differently. And so, Self-examination is required to consider areas where our public-facing behaviors don't align with the content of our hearts. Being a kind person on the outside, but harboring animosity and slanderous thoughts are opposed to the idea of, great, of the greater righteousness Jesus calls his disciples. Commending the idea of integrity and honesty while looking for ways to escape contractual obligations or a personal promise 
indicates a duality of, per, of a person requiring repentance. Jesus summarizes this section on the law with the statement, be teleos, just as the Father is teleos. And this is part of being salt and light in the world. At this, uh, sorry, okay. After correcting our understanding of the law, uh, Jesus moves to the next section, providing instructions on the greater righteousness with regards to our religious practices. If I were to ask you, what are the foundational practices of the Christian faith? How would you answer? What would be the top three practices in your weekly walk? And I think it would be something along the lines of scripture, prayer, and Sunday worship. But in contrast to what we think are religious practices, first century Judaism had three pillars of religion, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And Jesus provides instructions in these three areas, affirming the rightness of these practices and focusing on the heart condition required when one practices piety. And uh, there are several major themes in this section. First being the theme of hypocrisy. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. The term hypocrite was a term that referred to a play actor who performed on the stage of a Greek or Roman theater. The modern use of the term hypocrite is applied to someone who says one thing but does another. But this is not how the scribes and Pharisees behaved. They lived exactly as they preached. You, you could not find them eating pork tenderloin in an upscale restaurant. Rather, Jesus used the term hypocrite to call them out for their religious acting. They were performing external deeds of piety as an act to be praised by men while their hearts were far from God. The second major theme is the act of public versus the secret. The hypocrites were practicing their righteousness before men in public. In contrast, Jesus instructed his disciples to give, pray, and fast in secret in order to be noticed by the Father. The third major theme is the idea of earthly rewards versus rewards from the Father. And Jesus' ethics is not purely Kantian or driven by duty. The purpose of privately practicing almsgiving, prayer, and fasting is the expectation of a reward from the Father. The promise of a reward is an invitation to obtain the best in life. Why strive and work for earthly rewards when you have the option of storing a better reward in heaven? So whenever you give to the poor, don't stand the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. So the first act of piety Jesus covers is almsgiving or giving to the poor. Jesus expected every believer to practice almsgiving. It was a given that his disciples would take up the responsibility to take care of the needs of the childless widows, orphans, and those without means of material provision. We have a clear example of this in the practice. From, uh, uh, we have a clear example of this from Apostle Paul, who, as he traveled visiting various churches throughout the Roman Empire, collected money for the poor believers in Jerusalem. So, if you're not regularly giving to the poor, there's a there's a need to wrestle with this instruction from Christ. Next, whenever you pray, you must be you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in their synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. So Jesus addressed the practice of prayer. He begins with the warning against practicing prayer as a public performance like the hypocrites. 
In addition, they were not to pray like the Gentiles, for the Gentiles would babble on in their prayers using special words or phrases in an effort to grab the attention of their gods. Instead, Jesus expected prayers to be intelligible, concise, and addressed to the Sovereign Father. But when you fast, put, on oil on your, uh, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. Lastly, Jesus addressed the practice of fasting. And according to Joel 2, uh, 12 through 17, a sacred fast was to be an expression of true inner repentance and not just an empty ritual. Instead, the scribes and Pharisees were using the fast to put on a show to portray themselves as spiritual heroes who suffered on behalf of the nation. Jesus assumed that we would fast and provided instruction on how to fast. As disciples of Christ, uh, as we fall into sin and turn in repentance, fasting should be a regular part of our daily walk with the Lord. After covering, Jesus, uh, after covering religious piety, Jesus spoke as a wise sage, providing instructions on wise living, beginning in Matthew 6, 19. Don't store up tre- uh, for yourselves treasures in, on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Jesus had just spoken regarding acts of piety that the Father will reward. So true wisdom is in recognizing that the best place to store wealth uh, is in heaven. Jesus instructed his disciples to be a person who seeks to maximize one's treasure in heaven. Then he says, the lamp is the eye of, uh, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, Scripture uses the language of the eye to to refer to an outlook or perspective on money or material objects. Deuteronomy 15 warns against being stingy towards a poor brother, and this expression for stinginess is the evil eye. In Matthew 20, uh, the master asks, Is your eye evil because I am good? Conversely, Proverbs 22 refers to the generous person as one with a good eye. Jesus was speaking to one's outlook or perspective on money as a reflection of the character of the whole person. Greed, stinginess, and jealousy have a way of driving out any righteous intentions of the heart. In contrast, generosity is compatible with God's will. It says, uh, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one or, and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus personified money as a competing idol in the heart and thus elevated the issue as a matter of idolatry and false worship. The language of service draws attention to the quality of life under bondage to mammon versus life lived in service to God. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Whether you worship God or worship money will be revealed through your anxiety about the provisions in life. Apprehension, anxiety, and worry are a result of serving the God of money. Instead, he called his disciples to trust the character of God. Arguing from lesser lesser to greater, Jesus informed the disciples that the Father cares for his children much more than he cares for the birds and the flowers. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. 
So instead of worrying about daily provisions, Jesus informed his disciples that the spiritual and heavenly things must be believers' highest priorities. Seeking the Father's kingdom and his righteousness meant finding, entering, and being great in the kingdom. It meant seeking, asking, knocking to be filled with the greater righteousness from the Father. Then he says, do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you'll be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you'll be measured by the same measure you use. As we seek to become whole persons and pursue this greater righteousness, we may become prideful and start judging others, saying, why aren't they living as I am? Thus, Jesus instructs us towards our hypocritical judgment of our brothers. Um, he wanted us to address our own sinfulness before moving others to help them in their sin. But he also says, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. So continuing on on the topic of providing correction, Jesus warns against continuing to press cor for correction on someone who refuses to turn from their sin. There is no benefit in giving meat of the holy sacrifices to street dogs. There is nothing to be gained by tossing objects of great value to unclean pigs. The pigs will crush and spit out the pearls, and wild dogs will bite the hand that feeds them. Thus, the disciples were inviting harm if they persisted in providing correction to those who are not interested. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. The context of this section on asking, knocking, seeking indicates that this is a plea to God for entrance into his kingdom. This is not a blanket statement that God will answer all prayers. Rather, this is related to the petition of the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. The term seek was previously used uh, in the imperative that the disciples were to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The good gift of the Father is the very kingdom of God. That the idea is that in light of the high demands of the sermon, the disciples were to realize the poverty of spirits and their need for God's grace to enter the kingdom of God. Thus, they should ask, knock, and seek the Father to attain the righteousness the heart of righteousness required for entrance into his kingdom. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. The golden rule, therefore, and um, uh, this is the golden rule. Therefore, and the law and the prophets in verse 12 indicates that this is the main principle to be found from Jesus' teaching starting all the way back in 517. So this is the character of God that required, uh, uh, this is the character that God required of his people in the Old Testament. The Sermon on the Mount was not an exhaustive collection of all the commands of God, but a snapshot of the lifestyle that the Father desired from his children. From the selected teachings, the, he the hearers were, to, were expected to understand the main principle underlying God's requirements. The golden rule then stands as that principle, to refrain from the undesirable treatments of others and to act for the benefit of others. Jesus ends his teaching on the law and the prophets and moves to demand a response. He offers two options to his hearers, each leading to diverging eternal consequences. 
The separation is determined by whether or not one obeys the teachings of Jesus. There is no room for sitting on the sidelines. There are two gates, two types of trees, two types of builders. Jesus warns the listener to choose carefully between the two. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and narrow, uh, and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult, and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Gates were built as access points into a walled city. Thus, gate is an eschatological term describing entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The imagery, the imagery of walking on a road is used in scripture to refer to either a righteous lifestyle or a wicked lifestyle. Thus, the narrow road is in reference to the restrictive nature of life lived by Jesus' disciples. It exists in contrast to the wide road that offers enough moral latitude for each person to live as they please. The narrow road is a countercultural life that is chosen by a limited number of Jesus' followers. And he says, Be on guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. And so they were to be on constant alert for false prophets who led their followers on a path of destruction. The central message in, in this section is contained with the inclusion, you will know them by their fruits. Jesus would later warn in Matthew 24, 24, that false prophets will perform signs and wonders. And so miracles were not to be used as validations of a prophet. Rather, false teachers should be recognized by how well one follows the pattern of life laid out in the sermon. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house upon, uh, on the rock. The therefore in verse 24 ties the requirements of walking along the narrow path and the necessity of producing good fruit to the conclusion that the hearer must not only hear these words, but become a whole person who practices them. The imagery of a storm is commonly used in, by the Old Testament prophets to refer to divine judgment. Each of the five discourses in Matthew contains an eschatological ending. Thus, the rain, floods, and winds are not uh, centrally a reference to various trials in life, but rather the eschatological judgment in the kingdom. The wise prepare for the coming divine judgment by changing their life in obedience to Jesus' words. The foolish build their life thinking that they are protected from God's judgment, but end up with a complete loss. The sermon ends when Jesus comes down from the mountain, completing the pronouncement of divine revelation. The crowds were amazed because of the stark contrast of Jesus' teaching and authority when compared to the oral teachings of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus spoke with the authority of one greater than Moses. And at the same time, the crowds did not end, did not end up accepting Jesus as Lord. And likewise, we can leave, leave here in awe of the authority of Jesus, but not end, but end up, ah, but not end up building our lives upon His commands. We can speak platitudes about the powerful teachings of Christ. We can tell each other that the Sermon on the Mount is righteous and good. But Jesus asks us asks us to decide today whether we will build our life upon His words, um, or whether we will continue to live our life in our own way. I hope and pray that you will choose today to build your life upon Christ's words.